Mach 3, give me cruise show on 2, 3, and 4. Six three. Mach three, can you start line two? Five electric. Mach three, give me start line one and crew show on seven and nine. Hey, do something. I hate that Super op line three, red ball avionics. Super Ops. Line 7 is code 3 for Flickas. Fuck. Hey, so I started a Patreon because frankly, this stuff's getting expensive. Nothing will change the podcast or the blog if you don't subscribe, but if you want early access to episodes, monthly AMAs, episode shoutouts, voting on podcast topics, and all kinds of 20 Years Done gear, head over to patreon.com slash 20 years done. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing said should be construed as legal advice nor as the formation of an attorney-client relationship. Tyler Hodiniak is the author of a new book titled There and Back Again, America Through the Eyes of a Traveling Veterans Disability Attorney. Half the proceeds from the book are being donated to a national veterans organization. I really enjoyed reading it, especially because Tyler created these fantastic mental images of American landscapes and locations allowed me to feel like I was traveling with them. It's available on Amazon in both paperback and as a digital copy. Check it out. Okay, so today uh, I'm joined by Julianne McClay and Tyler Hadiniak, an attorney at the law firm Jackson McNichol, where Julianne and I actually interned this summer as law students at Maine Law. But Tyler wrote a book about his time as a traveling VA attorney, uh, and I really want to deconstruct his experience with that, and especially as it relates with Julianne as a non-service uh, member that worked on veteran disability services or veteran uh disability legal services. And then the second half is going to be us kind of deconstructing how the VA claims process works and uh, all of that. Uh, Julianne, what a lot of people don't realize is the voice of the ops girl on the intro to this podcast, calling out all of these uh, aircraft malfunctions. And what's really funny is she had no context for what any of the words or letters meant which is why like her inflections are so bizarre. Like she inflects up at the, at the, a weird time or something. You don't understand how many times we did that. We spent hours trying to get me to do it right. And then we even said the wrong words or something. I did it backwards. And... Yeah, 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 I did uh, 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 op super. But what's really funny is then I, as I realized that your inflections were all like wrong, I was like, everyone's going to know you're not a maintainer and you don't know how to say these letters and words right. And then I realized that most people that work at ops and make these calls also use the wrong inflection because they don't know maintenance. And I was like, oh, this is absolutely perfect. So Julianne is now uh, moved to another law school. So that way she can make tons and tons of money as a, as a tax attorney is her plan. Yeah. She's going to kill yeah. it. I'm sure. Uh, and then Tyler, you, you know, obviously I read, I read your book. So I kind of saw the, the, the process you went to with, with school, law school, uh, post-law school sort of certification stuff and then eventual employment with uh, Jackson McNichols, but you want to kind of do a quick bio on yourself? Sure, yeah. And first, thanks for having me on, Chris. Uh, I really appreciate the invite. Uh, so I was, I grew up in Maine. I'm from a small town in central Maine called Freedom and uh, went to high school in nearby Thorndike, went to college in Farmington, and then went to law school in Portland. So I've been around Maine for basically all of my life. 
And I started working at Jackson and McNichol as an intern during my second year of law school uh, in, in June 2017. And I stuck with them through the end of law school. And then once I passed the bar, I joined as a full-time traveling attorney. So, so Jackson McNichol is really my first big boy legal job. And uh, for, for reasons I'm sure we'll get into, it's been such an extraordinary experience uh, and I'm, I'm very thankful to them. And I've learned a lot from my uh, three and a half years there. Yeah, so uh, that's probably a good segue to start talking about your book. So I thought it was a really interesting book where you kind of interwove like different sort of parts of your life into one sort of narrative. Like I would have never imagined half the stuff that you kind of wrote about because it was like, I would have only seen the compartmentalized portion of you're going there for a VA uh, hearing, right? Yeah. But I thought it was really interesting that you were like joining together, you know, the VA stuff, plus your appreciation for America, plus like the outdoors sort of activity and your introspection. So you want to, yeah, like talk on that. Yeah. So I really wrote it. Well, first I'll, I'll say the, the book is, is based around a travel journal I kept. I traveled for Jackson and McNichol from June, 2019, until the pandemic really hit in, in March of 2020. And that travel journal not only encompassed the clients I met and the places I went, but was much more introspective than I've ever gotten about any other part of my life. Uh, I had some really long plane rides on which to just do nothing but write in this journal. So I wrote about you know my, my feelings about the job, the, the places I, I went and how those places and the people impacted me. Um, my thoughts on being away from home so often, uh, other career developments, other you know personal loss, uh, de dealing with that while on the road, and so it, it turned much more into a, a into a holistic memoir, which I re I feel really weird saying that because you know if you had asked me before this, you know, no twenty seven year old deserves a memoir. <laughs> That's something you know uh, older famous people write. But, uh, you know, I saw this opportunity right when I first joined to travel to to all different parts of the country. And I said, geez, you know, this is this is too good a pass, uh, too good an opportunity to pass up. And I have to memorialize this in my travel somehow. Hence, the, the travel journal was born. Yeah, I thought it was, uh, you know, especially the introspection, some of the poetry you did, but a lot of it was just you alone with your thoughts and kind of deconstructing how you see the world and, and what matters and what doesn't matter. And it's really hard to like put your true self out in print to strangers, right? Like that's a, it's, it's, it, you know, especially as it looks like as it progressed and you realize how introspective it was and how much you were discovering about yourself, putting it out there for strangers, how does that feel? That's a very vulnerable position, right? It is, yes. Uh, I, so I, I started writing the journal on the advice of my grandfather, who I talk about in the book. And the piece of advice he had for me was, write as if no one will ever read this. And, and that's what I did when I did a um, cross-country road trip during law school. I kept a travel journal for that. Nobody's ever read it. But here, I thought the, the lessons and the the stories were unique because I figured, you know, how many law firms in the country do veterans disability? Not many. Of, of those law firms, how many attorneys 
do exclusively or, or basically exclusively appeals work, not much. And how many of those attorneys actually traveled like Jackson and McNichols attorneys that traveled before the pandemic, not many. And of those attorneys, how many kept a travel journal? Very, very, very few, I'm sure. Uh, and then and then how many of those travel journals get published? You know, so I, I quickly realized that I had a, a very unique story to tell, not only in the line of work I was in or, or am in, but the travel I did. Uh, and so I, I did write the journal as if nobody would read it. And before I finalized the manuscript, I did take out some only the most extraordinarily sensitive pieces of introspection information, that kind of stuff. Overall, I, I did not want to hide anything. You know, I wanted the book to be genuine. I did not want people to think, oh, he's, he's dramatizing a story or, or playing something up to make it more readable. No, I, I say right in the intro, I did not dramatize anything. You know, people looking for, for flashy, you know, one night flings in faraway hotel rooms will have to go elsewhere because this is not that kind of, of, of book. It's, it's not dramatized like that. Yeah. So everything the reader reads is something that happened or someone I met. Yeah. So I kind of experienced that with my blog because when I started my blog, once I kind of got the ability to like have free unrestricted speech after my military service, I really didn't think anybody would read it at all. Like it, it was like stories from my career and eventually culminating in like the story that destroyed my career. Uh, but I thought it would be like my Facebook friends, like a hundred or 200 readers. And then as, and then as I kind of gained popularity and people started going back to my old stuff, I had to really kind of wrestle with the fact that strangers were going to be seeing parts of my life that was, you know, what I thought would be restricted to my friends. And then, so like indirectly, because I did, there was no plan for a broad audience to read it, probably very much akin to when you actually kept your travel journal with, you didn't know what you were going to do with it. You just wanted to document this time. That's what I was doing with the blog, but I was publishing it and just assuming nobody would read it. And then when people started going back, it, it, for me, it was really hard. And that's where I had to make sure that I was being as honest as possible. So that way there wouldn't be this perception that I was like a, a fraud or something or only given the good parts, which is also why I kind of have detailed where I've um, messed up. Yeah, you know, I it was really only the, the few days leading up to the ebook release date, December 10th, that, that came before the paperback release on December 14th. Uh, it was only a few days before that where I was starting to get into my own head and thinking, oh my God, what if nobody reads it? What if those who do read it hate it? What if they think, oh, what's this guy? Why does he think he's so special? You know, that kind of thing. And, and I said to myself, what people think about it is not anything I can control. You know, the book is done. The book is is scheduled for publication and whatever happens, happens. So I, I just had to realize that hopefully people like it. Maybe some won't. Maybe not many people will read it. But at the very least, some people will. And it was something I could leave for, you know, future generations of Hadiniacs. Uh, and then uh, in to perhaps get people more into the book as well as to support a good cause, I, I have right on the cover, you know, half of profits from the sales of this book will go to a national veterans charity. The charity I picked is the Disabled American Veterans, DAV, because they are highly ranked when it comes to charity work and the efficiency of their work. 
and they have wide brand recognition. So I, I encourage anyone who wants to pick up the book, you know, keep in mind that it's not what I think is an interesting read, but it also goes toward a good cause. Yeah, and, I, and I'll say uh, Tyler and I's interaction when we worked at JNM was relatively low because he wasn't my supervising attorney. Um, so it was the weekly staff meetings where we would just kind of talk about specifics of the cases or issues that we're seeing in our cases. So I didn't have a preconceived, uh, uh, like I didn't know Tyler well enough to want to read it because I knew him. But when I started reading it, it's really interesting So you, you interweave so many, like if someone's really into history, and especially travel locations in history, battlefields, you know, everything else, they're going to be interested in. If they're interested in the kind of soothing uh, nature that, you know, the outdoors can, can do for the human soul, where you can kind of decompress from, you know, life. You know, you talk about as soon as you land in a town, you're immediately looking to leave the town and get out into nature and do these things. Yeah. Or if you are interested in, veteran advocacy and seeing the struggles that veterans kind of face that's it's like four stories and in, in stuff that's all kind of interwoven together so if any of that stuff is interesting to any of the listeners then you're going to like tyler's book and then you'll also learn about the stuff that may not interest you like if you're really interested in, in what it's like to do veterans uh disability work and interacting with veterans you're still going to learn about the history and the travel and the introspection and all that stuff so i uh, highly encourage it but one of the things I want to ask Julianne about is, you know, you kind of talked towards the beginning of the book that, you know, you had been writing these memos as an intern and in preparation for these kind of court dates and you hadn't met the clients. And that was almost exclusively what Julianne and I did as interns this last summer, which was read these, these humongous medical files and trying to find evidence and, and make the best case for them. But for me, like there was a few clients that I spent a lot of time on that I became attached to just through the file. And I know certainly that was for Julianne. Yeah, it happens for sure. I, I, I recall when I first started as an intern, I, I read the complete like chronological medical records of a client. We were primarily working with, with this client's widow because the client had died sometime before, but I, I was reviewing his medical records and I thought to myself at the end of it, like, oh, my God, I feel like I know this guy. And I was sad that he died. And because and, I could feel how uh, just seeing the trials and tribulations that he had to go through in the months up to his death, all the medical issues, I, I really felt for the wife because I got an excellent sense of, of how his medical issues impacted both him and her. So, so it's a heavy job, you know, it's, it's a tedious job going through the medical records like, like you guys did. Uh, but you can, you can learn a lot and definitely feel some em empathy for these people. Well, one of the things, cause Tyler was my supervising attorney. Um, one of the things that I actually brought up, cause I had weekly meetings with just Tyler, not the whole firm was that I, it was just felt really weird to me that I was knew everything about somebody that I never met. Like I was reading some of their psychological reports, I was reading all these things and it was just really intense. There was actually um, a case that I read. It was thousands of pages that I actually had to go to Tyler and I was like, I'm going to take a break for today from this case and move on to a different one just because it's, it's a lot like what um, people go through. And I think that was such a big impact on me was just that idea of 
reading through these cases and I got to see what a judge feels like not ever meeting a client. I mean, you as an attorney get to meet the client, but the judge gets to read through all of these documents before they actually get to the client. And it was just a very interesting perspective for me being someone who read all about a person, but will never actually meet them. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's part of the heavy charge of a lawyer's job. Uh, you know, you, you have access to, uh, through our limited power of attorney, we have access to medical records and prior VA procedural history. And you can build a, a profile in your own head at, at the very least of a client. And then that was, you know, the fun part of when I would travel out to, to meet the clients in their own home states, because we would go to the VA regional office in, in their state. And I would meet these clients after talking on them or talking with them on the phone at least a few times before the hearing, as well as reviewing all of their medical records and information they've sent to the firm over the years. And it was cool to put faces to the voices and the faces to the stories. That, that's part of the reason why I thought basing my book around my VA travel, not just travel in general, but the travel I did for work and meeting these clients was the most interesting way to, to frame the book and, and frame my travel journal. You'll find that uh, I write many stories or, or I include many stories of clients uh, and i heavily inspired by work from, from artists like uh, Bruce Springsteen where his songs are, uh, you know, they're based around characters and the stories are based around characters. And I thought, well, geez, this is, you know, I, I can do this. I can, I can base my, my writing around these characters, these people I meet uh, from varied backgrounds, varied walks of life in, in varied places around the country. Uh, I, I thought that was a nice and captivating way to weave the stories together. You know, that's exactly what I was going to say. It very much, as you read it, you get a sense of when you meet these veterans in their with their families and with that local culture, like we think of America as one broad society with like one broad culture, but the reality is you go from city to city or state to state, region to region, and it's like drastically different. And then what's really interesting is, is you kind of talked about when you were in the plains and there was no mountains and you were like, you wanted to go somewhere and see something. Like you had mentioned that, uh, you know, one of the locals had said, if he can't see more than 25 miles, he gets like uncomfortable. Like that's something I would have, and that was really interesting because now you're kind of weaving together like the psychology of where they are in America as your clients with their family. And you do it really well and you do it really efficiently, which is probably a, a result of you being in law school and having to write for efficiency and accuracy, right? And persuasion probably. But like very in very short order, you kind of weave like this is the, family, this is the local culture, but this is also the, the topography and the environment that's around. And it all kind of, even though you don't, you don't state it explicitly, it's very interrelated of why the veteran is the way they are, why the locals are the way they are and the environment and the nature around them and how that kind of plays into that perception. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, if, if there is, there's one overarching lesson from, from my travels is that America is several different cultures and the fact that we are one you know geopolitical entity is such a testament to our system of government and and the people within it i i loved going out to 
New Orleans because it was so radically different from anything I, I knew uh, growing up in Maine. I have fallen in love with the West, uh, the desert, like, you know, New Mexico, Arizona, West Texas, uh, just because it's so radically different from what I grew up with in Maine. And, and that's different from going out to the California coast. And that's different from going over to Seattle. And, you know, it's just so many different cultural stories uh, in America. It, it was such a thrill to experience firsthand. Yeah, I saw that in your book, too, where you talked about uh, there was a few times where you went to El Paso, Las Cruces sort of area. And obviously, I was stationed at Holloman for from 2014 to 2018. And I hate the desert. I hate the brown. I mean, I was, in, I was in the Southwest for like most of my career. So like one of the things when I retired was I want to move somewhere green and with four <laughs> seasons and with snow. So like that's how Maine got on my list of places to go to. So when I was seeing you like romanticizing the dead and barren wasteland that is like <laughs> central and Southern New Mexico, I was like, oh, we are just completely different people. Oh, I think it, it's so beautiful. The, the nothingness is beautiful. And well, and I, I told my wife, you know, I would never move out there, though, because one of my crippling loyalty to Maine and two, you know, if I were to move uh, out there, then then the novelty would wear off. Right. And, and I go out there for the novelty and why I loved it so much the first time I went out was the novelty of the nothingness and, you know, the, the two color color scheme, you know, the blue sky and the, and the brown desert, you know, that's it. But I, I get out there and visit however often I can. I anticipate I will do so for the rest of my life. And uh, it's, it, it is fascinating how, how experiences different like, like yours and mine, Chris, uh, can lead to such different interpretations of the same place. But that area, Las Cruces particularly, uh, I loved it. I mean, I, I think I wrote about it a couple times mm -hmm. in my book. I think it was my favorite place down there in the West, uh, Southwest. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how our influences impact the way we, th we think. Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess, Julianne, you've done a lot of traveling, but also uh, I'm interested in, you know, like, going back to talking about the clients, there was times, I mean, we would read, I remember the first file I opened, it was like 400 pages. And I was like, Oh, my God, 400 pages. And I like, spent all day like reviewing it and stuff and then writing the memo. And then the next one I opened was 7300 pages. And I immediately sent all the other interns a message going, I guess this is what I'm going to be doing the rest of the summer. And I'll see you guys in September. And that was the end of it. Um, and it took a long time to kind of go through it was really intimate, right? Because a lot of a lot of stuff that we saw was this intersection between addiction, mental health, and sort of like legal issues, which is not like a difficult concept to kind of wrap your mind around just from all of our life experiences. But I felt especially that learning as much as we did about them, especially when we saw some of those clients that were just living in really awful conditions a lot of it because of like mental health disabilities that was not compensated for. And it was just so frustrating when you were Tyler, when you were talking about that one client who had passed away and you guys were still trying to advocate for uh, the money for his widow, like I would see that too. And it's like, or I would see clients that I worry we're going to pass away soon without ever getting the compensation for me. It was really frustrating. It's like, 
these people's lives are being cut short because of a bureaucracy here. And so I think it's also really interesting that you said they had to step away from a file. I guess, how hard was it for you to really kind of do a deep dive on a client and, and what they experienced? I just, um, I'm a really touchy feely person. Like it's hard for me to read about people's struggles um, just cause I want to help. I'm a helper. I'm, I want to just jump in and help people. And that was a hard thing for me about this type of law is that you can't help. You can do the best you can to help everyone to get them to that hundred percent permanent and total. But sometimes you just can't because there is that limitation of what the percentages mean. And if it was me, everybody would be a hundred percent permanent and total, but I, I can't. So sometimes reading these documents where you see people and the years they have spent in the system, the, the years they have not received any help, the, but I think what hurt me the most was that people weren't believing them. Like you'd read some of these like quote unquote buddy letters and they would not help at all. They'd be like, actually, well, and you're like, well, you're supposed to be helping the person, you know? And so, um, and I think that that's where Chris and I during the summer were like, that was something we'd call each other on and we'd be like, this is what I see from this person. We'd like list out things. What do you think this could be? What can we do secondary to connect this? And Chris and I really had this, we believe you. And I, I think that that was something that was really important for me was that we read your file, we believe you. It's because I went through my own health journey that I've talked to Chris about. It was hard for me. Not, I was, I'm not a vet, veteran, but um, I had my own health journey where I just felt like I had all these symptoms that nobody was believing me. So reading this, I was like, yes, we believe you. We believe you. We just need to connect these things together. So that was really difficult was that we believe you as a firm and we're trying our best to get everything together for you. But sometimes the judges don't see that or sometimes the judges did see that. And we'd have these team meetings and they'd be like, this judge, we finally got the connection for this person to get what they really need. And that was, that was awesome. So those days were great. But then there were days where you'd read about somebody and some horrible event that happened to them during service. And you're like, wow, what can I do? Or the things where we talked about like Camp Lejeune. I mean, you're exposed to these toxic waters and nobody wants to even admit that you were exposed to these or that you deserve any benefits from that. And that was really hard for me as somebody who wants to help people. Yeah, and, and that ties in to the crux of my job and my, my coworkers' jobs when we could travel. Uh, and that was to go represent clients in hearings before judges on the Board of Veterans Appeals. Just like you were saying, Julian, we, we believe clients. I mean, we would not take a client if we did not believe that they were telling the truth and all that. Uh, but the purpose of these hearings that we'll probably get into later on in the podcast is for the judge to hear from the client themselves. And, you know, the judge has evidence in the record that they and their, their attorney staff work through, but there really is no substitute for a client telling their heartfelt story to a judge preferably face-to-face, -face, but more practically over video calls. Uh, and so, you know, the idea of facing the judge together, the attorney and the client side-by-side -side, meeting together in the regional office and facing a judge uh, to convey to the judge the story behind the veterans' claims is a, a crucial aspect of, of the VA disability process. That's why Jackson and McNichol place such an emphasis on uh, sending their attorneys out to to meet clients. I mean, it's not the cheapest option, 
for sure. But it, it was the most efficient in, in getting the client's story to be believed by the judge. Mm. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. I think that, um, I don't know how much you guys know about kids' stories, but I loved the Velveteen Rabbit. And it was like, all he wanted to do was feel real, right? And I feel like, Tyler, you did a great job. And Chris and I were talking about this even before the podcast, about how in the book, you would go out there and make the person feel like they were real. Like you just mentioned, like what they were feeling was real. I was asking Chris, like, what do you think the virtual hearings have done for that? Because I feel like when a judge has a person in front of them saying, hey, this is what I feel, um, it's a lot harder to be like, no, you know, um, whereas I don't know how you feel if virtual hearings are helping with connectivity and getting more people heard more efficiently. And if that's a better pro, if that outweighs the idea that people are not getting their face-to-face hearings. Yeah. So during COVID times, the VA deserves so much credit for the way they rolled out a virtual hearing process where uh, for all intents and purposes, the attorney, the client, and the judge get on a Zoom call and have the hearing that way. That'll, that has saved the hearing model in, in these times, particularly because the Board of Veterans Appeals does not allow telephone hearings, which we'll probably talk about a, l- a little later. Uh, and so having the, the virtual hearings does allow the docket to progress to, for clients to get their day in court, so to speak, without too much delay. It only works when all parties know how to use the technology. It's difficult for older veterans to work a smartphone or a computer, understand that they are in a virtual hearing room or a virtual waiting room before the hearing. The terminology is not something they are used to. And so when you do not have the you know, vocabulary to try to explain why maybe your computer's not working or your smartphone's not working, or that your smartphone doesn't have the permissions that are appropriate for your video and audio to turn on, it, it makes having those hearings sometimes difficult. And we do have to reschedule or postpone hearings because of technical error, whether user or non-user technical error, uh, but overall, yes, it is a godsend. The VA deserves so much credit for rolling out this program. I have done dozens and dozens and dozens of these hearings over the past several months. And overall, they have, they have saved many veterans' cases uh, and have made the veterans still feel heard in an, in an efficient way, for sure. You know, that's a good point, too, because... When COVID was starting, especially since our internship was starting in May, which was like right when a lot of the lockdowns had started happening and spiking, I didn't expect the VA to do well radically changing the modality for the the vast, vast I mean, the entire majority, you know, all of their uh, appeals and claims and uh, uh, court dates. But you're right, like, there's a few hiccups here and there, but like it was really seamless and and the VA is often attacked for their bureaucracy and their inefficiencies. But in this case, they were exemplary. And I thought also for Jane in, in particular, you guys adapted as well and faster because you recognize a lot of your clients didn't have, you know, access to technology. So it's like, okay, we're going to procure tablets. We can mail them out. So that way they have it available. And then I, and uh, we were, you know, as an intern, it was like, very valuable because at the first like team meeting, I'm like, Hey, can the interns sit on in these uh, court dates? Cause we wouldn't have been able to see them otherwise. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Uh, but we saw 
this was genius too. Like you would, you would have the older veterans, you know, a lot of them like myself have like hearing issues from their service and stuff. So, you know, using a tablet or something is going to be a struggle. Um, but I noticed that a lot of times uh, J and M would coordinate like a grandchild or a younger person to like sit with them to, to help them both, probably both of the technology with hearing, like repeating what the judge had said or something like that. And I was like, Oh, that's like, genius that you just have this built-in organic tech expert sitting there with the veteran and it's like it was it was really good like you guys the the between the va and jnm and the veterans i thought that could have been really bad and really created a, a huge backlog and the va is already struggling with the backlog and i would probably wager the va might have actually reduced their backlog during COVID instead of expanded it which is amazing Yes. Yeah. You know, we really try to pull out all the stops before we tell the VA we have to reschedule this hearing. You know, we'll ask the veteran, you know, if they can figure out the, the technology on their own. Awesome. Wonderful. If not, you know, do you have a household member who can help you? Do you have a nearby family member who could help you? Do you have a neighbor who could help you? Do you have grandkids? Do you have a, a you know a son or daughter who uh, can, can help you out who are a bit more used to the technology? Uh, and what has helped us uh, complete some hearings is that maybe the veteran don't, doesn't have any of these close familial or, or friend connections nearby, but they use uh, telehealth uh, through their local VA clinic. And so I've had many... Uh, clients who say, well, yeah, I, I use something like Zoom for my counseling sessions, you know, once a month or something like that. And so the VA's uh, use of technology in other fields besides these hearings has really helped clients adapt to these virtual hearings. So now that you've been doing Zoom, I'm, I mean, obviously your book ended March 2020, you know, so much of the book had to do with the traveling and the history and meeting the veterans and seeing all these unique places and microcultures in America and the outdoors exploration all kind of like made that a tolerable, not, not, not just a tolerable, but a really rewarding and enriching experience as a traveling attorney. So what have you done since the pandemic started? Because obviously that's very important to you. And now that's essentially barred. What have you, I mean, how, how have you been doing with the non-traveling and you know, the lack of trips to the arguably awesome Las Cruces Southwest area. Yeah. So, you know, the, I feel so weird and selfish saying this, but the pandemic was actually, it, it helped my career uh, because I was getting really sick of the density of the travel. I loved it. I, I loved seeing all these places and meeting all these people, but I was getting to the point in, in about February, maybe late January and February, 2020, where I thought, geez, you know, I, I really miss my family. I miss my friends. I, I crave for a, a normal work schedule again. Um, and I had gone to the point of asking my boss, uh, Francis Jackson, who, who wrote the forward for my book, uh, if he could take me off the, travel rotation of attorneys because we had some attorneys who were devoted to in-office work um, and then the few of us on the travel roster and, and I said Jack you know I I love my job you know I love my job you know I love the travel but I need to spend some time at home 
I was, I was uh, engaged. I was just buying a house in, in Sydney, Maine, where I live now. And I, I just missed, you know, the, the more settled parts of my life. And unfortunately he could not accommodate that request, which I totally got. Uh, but it was leading me to start to daydream about maybe applying for other jobs. Uh, and so uh, when my last hearing was March 11th, 2020, and then I think a few days later, Maine's governor put into effect a self-quarantine closed business order. And uh, so I, I then went from never being home to being home all the time. Right. So that was quite the radical change. But yeah, I, I was I was getting sick of 1130 night flights, uh, you know, into Portland airport, uh, you know, almost every week. I was on a plane maybe five or six times a week between uh, June 2019 and March 2020. Uh, and I spent at least one out of every three nights away from home. I actually went back in my, in my work calendar uh, while I was revising this book for publication and, and I tallied up all the nights I spent away from home. And uh, it, was, it was a lot, it was, it was at least a third. Uh, and those are only the nights where I spent the entire night away from home. More often than not, if I came home, it was on a very late night flight where I would arrive at my uh, Westbrook main apartment at maybe midnight. And so it, it was, it was getting too much. You know, what's interesting too, is that kind of gave you a glimpse into the veteran sort of experience as well, because, or the service member experience of deployments being, I mean, obviously it's not the same sort of intensity of, you know, depending on what the job is and where they're deploying to, but that lack of control over your life of where you want to kind of put down roots or where you want to be. And, and you're, you're doing something in service to a greater cause, which I'm sure a lot of service members can identify with, but it's the, you know, the travel seems really glamorous and romantic in the beginning, much like probably a lot of people in the military experience. And then when you're like, oh, we're going again, we're doing this again, you know, then it's like, just wears you down. And then also, like you talked about, like you want to spend time with your family, you know, you're, you're recently married. So it's like, you, you know, you, you address that fairly early in the book that it was important for you to maintain social sort of connections. That's something I'm sure any service member can immediately identify with. Yes, I, I certainly gained an appreciation for those kind of situations service members find themselves in. I told my wife, I said, you know, geez, I'm away from home you know, all the time, but that's nothing compared to, to what service members have to go through, uh, being away from their home and, and family and friends for years, potentially, you, you know? Uh, and so in the grand scheme of things, it was not bad, but, right. you know, it, it just, it's a testament to how dedicated service members are uh, to, to voluntarily put themselves in in that situation and then have to, you know, live with it. So I guess the last question before we switch to talking about uh, the, the VA process. So if, is there going to be another book later? I know obviously the traveling is kind of dwind, you know, dying down at least as far as a professional sort of thing or of the same frequency as before, but you're right. You wrote a semi sort of memoir at 27, unless you plan on dying in a year or two, like there's going to be more material. Well, uh, there, so in, in September and October of this year, I got special, special permission to go travel 
to meet a client because it, it was just the most dire of circumstances. Both times clients were facing almost terminal illnesses. They were in their 70s. They did not have the technological ability to have a virtual hearing. Going to meet them instead of my computer in their living room was literally the only option available to us. <clears throat> so in September, I went to Virginia and in October, I went to Georgia. Those are the only two times after March where I traveled. Uh, and so I did keep my travel journal current. You know, I, I still have entries for those trips, but if, if there is a follow-up to this book, it will not be of the same kind and caliber of, of this travel job or of when I could travel. Maybe if there's, <laughs> if I'm lucky enough to get like a second printing or something, I can include those the two September and October trips. But uh, overall, this, this was a one-time thing. And the thing is, I knew that. I knew that when I first started, and that's why I, I kept the travel journal to begin with. I saw, the, I saw the uniqueness and that this kind of travel would not come to me. You know, I, I could not reasonably expect this travel to come to me again over the course of my life. You know, and that's a, that's a really important point too. And I would encourage anybody that's currently serving or, or anything like that. I realized it as well. Like, uh, you know, I, I say the story, the end of my career, smoke doesn't always mean fire. Like I was documenting much of that in real time because I knew that this was going to, it was important to capture everything that I could. And I knew this was a story that I was going to tell eventually. And I had a few other stories, but I have to like reach back in my memory. I guess I do pretty good because the people that were there were like, holy cow, I can't believe you remember all that. But it, I think it's really important when you know you're doing something amazing to recognize it and start documenting it. Because even if you're, even if you never return, it could be something your kids find in the attic and they can learn about you when you're 20, 27 and, and doing this work. Or if you're in the military, what your service was like. Exactly. Or, or you just keep it for yourself. You know, yep. the, the a travel journal I kept for a, that cross country road trip I did uh, during law school, it was from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon and back. Yep. And uh, I, I don't think anybody else has read it except me. Uh, and I, on the anniversary, on the anniversary of me starting that trip, I, I take it out though. And I read it, mm. uh, you know, once a year, I, I don't want to dilute the, the significance and the impact of going through and rereading what happened. Uh, but because I left on December 26, you know, 2017 and, and came back January 7th, 2018 on December 26th. So here, you know, in, in four days, I'll, I'll open up that file and I'll read it again and, and love reliving some of those moments and memories. I was gonna say that's really awesome, but um, I think both you, Tyler and Chris are both really eloquent writers and I would never put myself in that same category. But what I do suggest if you're a listener and you do wanna record, like record what's happening to you, you can just set up like an audio thing on your phone or something and you can just record yourself, maybe speak a story and then that might inspire you later on or you can keep it on a flash drive. And that way you do have your stories and you don't have to be an eloquent writer. And even your travel journals don't have to be eloquent but that's actually what held me back in the past from writing down my stories is the fact that I feel um, a little bit behind in that. You know, there are so many different ways to record your impressions and memories. One thing I tried to do in this journal was branch out in my creative writing. Never really tried anything like that before. So I started writing some poems, which at the time I envisioned as song lyrics. I don't know music mechanics enough to actually put those lyrics to, to music, 
Uh, but so I suppose any <laughs> any song lyric without music is a poem, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, before we move on, Tyler, where can we find your book? Anybody who's listening that wants to read it. Thank you. Yes. So uh, it is available on Amazon.com and uh, Atlantic Publishing's website. Uh, and the book is called There and Back Again, America Through the Eyes of a Traveling Veterans Disability Attorney. I know it's a pretty wordy title and uh, something it's a J.R.R. Tolkien ripoff, but it's not, I guarantee you. Uh, it, but I wanted a title that kind of conveyed the, the mystery of, of the places I went and, and what the reader may find in the journal. Uh, and and uh, I got all the keywords in there. You know, I, I wanted people to know that I represent veterans, that I trapped, that, you know, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's There and Back Again by Tyler Hadiniak. Yeah, it was excellent too. I really appreciated it. Like, again, I was only setting out to read it to better understand you, but also to like see the veterans experience through the lens that you had. But I would got, it was much more enriching just seeing America through what you were describing as well. So I appreciate that. Yeah, it was great. Like I loved it. Um, it was like, it was like a journey. It was like, you know, it's, you get the mental imagery, especially, I mean, you just, I just saw it, but I thought it was great. And remember that all, uh, or a half of the book's profits go to the DAV. So yep. if, if you, you know, if you're on the fence about buying it, just, just know that, you know, a, half of its profits go to the DAV. Good cause. Yeah. So uh, now I want to transition to start talking about the veterans claim process. Um, and I'm going to kind of talk very briefly about uh, something called the Ferris Doctrine, the, the Federal Tort Claims Act, and very briefly, sovereign immunity, which kind of is the precursor for that. And again, there was a disclaimer at the front of the podcast. Also, this is not legal advice. I'm going to talk about uh, sovereign immunity and how that kind of created the Federal Tort Claims Act and how the Ferris Doctrine kind of plays into that. So the, the general idea of sovereign immunity is that, you know, countries and governments can decide who gets to sue them, which is, you know, can be problematic and prone to abuse, but then legislatures as a representative of the people, they kind of create kind of the wedge into that and create exceptions to that sovereign immunity. And one of those is the Federal Tort Claims Act. And then uh, unfortunately in the past, there was a case called Ferris versus US where the Supreme Court decided that essentially, even though the Federal Tort Claims Act allowed people to sue the government for negligence and harm caused by official sort of actions to get monetary compensation. The Supreme Court created this, carved out this exception for military members where they were barred from making any sort of Federal Tort Claims Act, so therefore lawsuits against the government for their treatment. In 2020, the National Defense Act, uh, National Defense Authorization Act, actually reduced the influence of the Ferris Doctrine a little bit, allowing medical malpractice in, in certain situations for service members to apply, which is amazing because there's been many cases where service members get relatively benign sort of surgeries. There, there was an incident maybe 10 or 15 years ago of, of a young 19-year-old airman who had gallstones and got general surgery at Travis Air Force Base, had, went to have his gallstones removed. And in that process, the general surgeon nicked an artery. And rather than fly, life flighting them to UC Davis Medical Center, uh, the surgeon elected to keep trying to fix it himself, even though he was not a vascular surgeon. Um, at which point, after hours, the young man lost uh, too much blood to his legs and they began to become necrotic or at least 
not viable anymore, at which time he was flown under an anesthesia to UC Davis where they amputated both legs. So in this case, this 19-year-old airman went down for a simple gallbladder removal and woke up without legs. And that was clearly like negligent malpractice. And that, that case went to the Supreme Court to challenge it. And then unfortunately, the, the president of the Ferris Doctrine barred him from any sort of suits. And the, the reason I'm kind of detailing that is because what ends up kind of happening now is the VA becomes like a de facto sort of harm caused by military service. This is a bureaucratic administrative process to compensate you. You know, part of the reason is because you're barred from suing. So that's kind of like the gist of the Ferris Doctrine. Like I said, it, it changed recently in legislature. It's important to note like that the, the carve out in the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act is still only for medical malpractice, which means... Uh, you know, I, I recently pu published an article that was titled You Need a Voice, and it detailed how, like, right now in, uh, I think, Mississippi, there's a guard base where uh, sheet metal troops were exposed to, like, highly toxic chemicals without proper, like, safety measures. And there's no, like, accountability there because there's they're barred until the medical part. And it's a medical malpractice. So, like, them exposing you to toxins and getting you sick, they can't be sued for that. So to me, that's very problematic because when you have accountability, when you have no accountability, then abuse is just going to naturally kind of bubble to the surface. So that's kind of the quick of the Ferris doctrine, but I really want to talk about the uh, VA claims process. So Julianne, you got some, some questions. I'm going to kind of let you run with it and I'll, I'll kind of jump in. We're going to switch seats a little bit. You're going to kind of be the interviewer and then I'll like maybe add on to anything that Tyler kind of says afterwards, but go nuts. Yeah, so I just kind of wanted to start with this idea of, we kind of mentioned it earlier, um, I mentioned it quickly, the legacy system. And then there, there's different systems depending on what year you um, first filed in. So if we could just kind of start with that to know what where system you're in. Um, obviously, this is just going to be a general overview of the system, but depending on, this might be able to help someone, what year are they in? What system are they in? Right, so if you have a... The decision made on your claim for benefits after February 19th, 2019, if you have a rating decision made on your benefits, then you are in the uh, what's colloquially called the AMA system, uh, and that's an acronym for Appeals Modernization Act. And th that act was passed by Congress given an effective date of February 19th, 2019, and the intent behind it was to modernize and make more efficient the VA disability system. Congress has heard complaints over years, probably over decades of how slow the disability claim system is, how impersonal it could be. And so th there are various legal mechanisms uh, in place in the new appeal system to move claims along faster to decide original claims faster and to in some cases cut off, but also in some cases expand your appeals opportunities. That's the AMA system. The legacy system is what's been in place since disability claims started. And that's where uh, if, if you have a decision before February 19th, 2019, then you are in the legacy system. Uh, and so it's possible to enter the, the AMA revised system from the legacy system, we encourage clients, and again, this is not legal advice, this is just me extemporaneously talking, 
we generally like to keep clients in the legacy system of appeals because the evidentiary record is a bit more liberal or, or the rules around evidence submission in the legacy system are a bit more liberal. And that, that fits right with the, with the AMA system. They want to move along cases faster. So the opportunities to submit evidence and the kind of evidence you can submit are necessarily cut off. That, that's just how you move cases. Uh, in the legacy system, the VA has really structured the appeals process to be pro-veteran. And I know that sounds weird to say, and I'm sure there'll be some listeners who are going to say, oh my God, what VA pro-claimant, what are you talking about? But at the root of it, when you get down to the legal substance of the VA disability process, uh, the presumptions afforded veterans that we'll get into, the filing requirements, which we'll get into, they are all pro-claimant much more than you might find in other traditional areas of law, in, in civil cases, in more traditional courts, uh, much more liberal. Yeah, I think that in any law system, as Chris and I are both law students, we're learning that sometimes not the substance, it's usually the procedure that really tangles you up. So um, I definitely think that that's really important. And it, talking about procedure and important things, is there's this trifecta that is, as we call the trifecta required for any claim. And it's, you'll hear this, it's the in-service event, the current diagnosis, and then a nexus which connects those two. And um, I think that Chris mentioned earlier in the podcast that the nexus was where a lot of veterans struggle to get that connection, to get that rating. So um, can you talk about those events and maybe talk about what can help a veteran? And maybe Chris, you can chime in about how you with maybe some tips. Sure. So, so the service connection test is, is what you refer to. That is the backbone of any disability claim. And there are three prongs. You, you have to have a current applicable diagnosis of some sort of medical condition. Uh, and recently pain has actually been included as a diagnosis if the pain causes functional impairment. You need to have some sort of in-service connection or event. And then a nexus uh, report, uh, preferably by a medical professional, someone who is competent to give opinions on medical issues, tying together the diagnosis and the in-service event. So current diagnosis, in-service connection, probative service connection nexus report. Those are the three aspects of any successful VA disability case. And so where many veterans go wrong, not by any fault of their own, is that they do not realize that they need to get a, a doctor to provide a nexus statement. I know it's very easy to think, yeah, okay, I, I have, you know, joint disease in my spine uh, and I lifted heavy boxes, you know, around the, the flight line for 20 years. Why isn't, I mean, of course my, my back condition is related to my Air Force service. That's, that's a no brainer. It is, uh, and no, that's where, you know, the firm believing in the client comes in. Like we, of course, we believe that's, that's the case. That's a totally plausible scenario. But in, in, in the legal system, you know, a judge would assign much more value to a doctor saying, yeah, this veteran's back condition is due to his military service. That's the objective evidence necessary to succeed on a case. So a, a veteran making an assertion to the VA is usually not enough. 
it is not enough for the veteran to say, yes, my, my back pain or, or my back condition is, was caused by my service. You need a, a doctor's evaluation. And that's where uh, the VA will uh, do what's called compensation and pension exams, CNP exams. Uh, th that's where the VA gets the nexus. If the VA sees a diagnosis and there's a plausible in-service connection in order to fulfill the, the, the VA's duty to assist a veteran in developing their case, again, it's one of those proclaimant procedural mechanisms in the VA system, then the VA will send the veteran for a CMP exam. These CMP exams could be well done, they could not be. And usually there is some way you can impeach a CMP exam, that you can find something wrong with it. And then if, if the veteran needs a favorable exam, however, that's usually where, where they look around for representation and they might come to a firm like Jackson and McNichol. We work with experts in different fields, orthopedics, mental health, et cetera. And when we see a case where we see the, that first two prongs of that service connection test are met, we just need that nexus report, we'll tell the veteran, listen, you know, we have this, this person who is an expert in their field and uh, we will ask them to write a report for you. Of course, the report costs money. You know, it's, a, it's an MD here, they're not cheap, uh, but their opinion is necessary. The, the doctor's opinion is necessary to succeed on the claims. So we'd rather spend you know, $800 on a, on a medical report and get the veteran, you know, a lot of money from it, from those claims, rather than say, well, you know, we don't, you know, it's $800. We don't want to pony it up right now. And so we can't help you. We work on a contingent fee basis, like many VA firms do, where if Jackson and McNichol successfully wins on, on a claim, then we just take 20% of retroactive benefits as our fee. We do not touch any of the benefits awarded to a veteran going forward. It's just 20% of the retroactive. Talking about the, um, I don't want to get too boggled down into different like legal procedures, but you mentioned a lot about plausibility. And I feel like that was a really big thing for me to learn when I was going through like different medical files is how plausible things were. Can you discuss plausibility and its importance? Yeah, so plausibility and the likelihood of an event leading or a veteran service causing a particular diagnosis is an aspect that I think is, is one of the most pro-claimant mechanisms in the VA disability field. And that's because in order to be awarded benefits from a particular claim, a veteran must prove at least as likely as not that their current diagnosis was due to their military service. At least as likely as not. What does that mean? That's not beyond a reasonable doubt, which you find in some criminal fields. That's not a preponderance of the evidence, a 51% chance or greater that uh, something occurred. At least as likely as not is a 50-50 chance. So it's, it's relatively easy to, to meet that test. There's usually at, at, at the very least, <laughs> and at least as likely not possibility that a veteran's current diagnosis is due to an in-service event or some other connection. Uh, and so this is a burden of proof that is unique in VA disability field, as far as, I, as I'm aware of. I don't know if there's any other area of law that has such a low burden of proof. You know, and I wanted to jump into like, 
Here's what I'll say. I know a lot of service members and veterans get frustrated that like 20 years after their separation, much like you said, Tyler, where they, they were hauling, you know, heavy equipment around the flight line and their backs all screwed up and they get frustrated because they, maybe they had, maybe they went to the doctor for a back strain or something in service. And then they have current de degenerative disc disease or some sort of spinal issue and they submit their claim and the VA denies it. And a lot of them get really frustrated because it's like, clearly it came from this, but I think it's really important, especially if, if you're doing your own claim, first of all, you need to recognize your own personal bias in your favor, right? But also view it from the other side. Like if I have a mailman, and I don't, I, I'm afraid to say this, but I have a mailman like slip on my stairs or something and he gets hurt and I know about it and he seems relatively fine. And then 20 years later, I get something in the mail saying, hey, this mailman says his back screwed up from slipping on the stairs 20 years ago. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> like there was 20 years of intervening stuff in between. And I don't know any of that. Like, I don't know if you played hockey. I don't know. I don't know all these things. And the VA is viewing it in, the, in a very similar way of, yes, you had this in-service event. And yes, you currently have this condition. But explain to me how nothing in between happened. And this is a, an a evolution of that injury in the service. And as Tyler pointed out, if it's as likely as not, so it's not a, a very high bar, but you still need to at least show a connection. And that's where, you know, you can go to your doctor, but the reality is your doctor is not necessarily going to understand certainly the, the, the words that Tyler used, the as likely as not. And your doctor might only know you for like the last year, year and a half, and they're very comfortable explaining how severe your condition is like medical imagery this is the level of pain this is what he talks this how many days he's missed from work i've had to excuse him or, or, or him or her or whatever but a lot of doctors don't feel comfortable using your current experience and diagnosis and then attaching their name to a hypothesis that for the last 20 years, it's as likely as not that this, and they're like, well, I wasn't there. I don't know if he was on the flight line. They don't see most of the time your civilian doctor post-military service. They don't see your service records, your medical records in the service, or any of these sort of documents about your, your service. So it's really hard to do. And that's where having a law firm that has a medical expert available. First, in, in my experience, it was cheaper because when I saw some of what you know, you guys had some really good doctors uh, like that would lay out a beautiful case to include like based on the rating schedule for the VA, his current symptoms match this percentage, which is like huge. And then they would say as likely as not, and they would kind of work through it. And the, the cost, when I saw like how much they were charging, I was like, I would have charged as a doctor, I would have charged way more. And I assume that's probably because because they work with this firm so much, they have like a lower fee because they get a lot of volume. So they kind of pay their bills that way, in which case trying to go out on your own and A, finding an independent medical doctor that is comfortable connecting dots from 20 years ago to today, and then understanding the jargon and the words to use in order to strengthen your case. I think that's really hard to find, in which case, if you're struggling with your claim, I think finding an attorney is a really good it's a good, it's a good way to go. Well, and, and so along that line, you know, it's, it's good to hire representation because we know what the doctor's looking for. You know, we know what relevant information we, we need to put in our evaluation requests. If a veteran uh, like yourself, Chris, who just tried to, you know, ask a doctor to 
to write a short statement linking your diagnosis to your service. You might not necessarily know what information is relevant or not relevant. And so we know the law, we know what the VA looks for, we know what the judges at the Board of Veterans Appeals looks for, and we're, we're able to focus the evaluation at the same time, not telling the doctors what to say. Right. We do not coach doctors on what to say, uh, but, but we do know what they look for and what's helpful for them. And along the same lines, there's no coaching the clients either. Like that, no. that was something, it was, let me go through the medical records and if there's ambiguity about the injury, especially with handwriting from old medical records, that was probably the most like detail oriented and slow work I did was, and sometimes it was like a message to Julianne was like, I want you to look at this client in the secure system and go to this page. And can you tell me what this word says? Cause I have like four possibilities. I know it's an ortho doctor, so it's probably something skeleton related, but I can't figure this out, but you're right. It's not coaching, but also as a veteran, as somebody that did uh, a lot of my own disability stuff, I think it's really important for you to read the 38 CFR. Like you can Google 38 CFR uh, low back pain or 38 CFR mental health or 38 CFR um, sleep apnea. And then yep. go to the table. My, I typically go through the Cornell. I think it's the Cornell Law website because it's always the first that comes up for me. But also you can go to the actual PDF, which I recommend downloading anyway. And you can do a keyword search as well. It's fairly well organized. But you need to know for yourself first, because if you don't understand how the VA rates, and then you get rejected, and you didn't understand the rules that they're working from, you didn't use the right words, and you feel like it's it's an affront, you're going to get emotional because you feel rejected. You need to understand exactly what they're measuring and why. And then really look at yourself and go, oh, okay, I can like move my arm this degree, right. even if that's what they rate for. Unfortunately, it'll probably get denied for these reasons. That's an important piece. And you know, that's one thing that that I want to make sure we convey as well that, you know, the, the VA employees, they can be frustrating to deal with, but I have never met one where I think, I think they're bad people or they are actively trying to uh, maliciously prevent veterans from getting disability benefits. Um, Chris is right. The 38 CFR, that's the code of federal regulations. That's, that's most of the, uh, or maybe all of where the regulations guiding the VA disability process are housed. Uh, and so there are strict criteria, uh, particularly, you know, once, once you get a condition service connected, the next step is, okay, well, what rating do you assign that injury? To what degree does this disability prevent gainful employment? Uh, and so we'll get into that probably in a second, but it's a very strict application of law. It is the classic lawyer's job. <laughs> you just look into the, into the federal regulations, dive deep into the law, reconcile those regulations with case law made by the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims and other uh, courts. And if, if you do not meet strict criteria, you know, and, and you do not have a, a representative like an attorney to try to wiggle around some of the strict criteria, your claim's gonna fail. And that happens far too often, but at the same time, you know, any lawyer will tell you that specific guidelines and rules are necessary for proper application and uh, awarding of benefits. So it's, it's, it can be a, a cruel looking system, but it is structured to be, to be highly specific and mechanical in its application. 
Yeah. So um, step one, just to kind of like wrap it up was to get that in, in the connection, right? Those three things that we talked about. Then step two was to go look at the 38 CFR and the ratings because there's different ones. Chris and I looked at a few clients with like a sleep apnea and well, and there's different ratings and it will show you and you can just kind of match where you are. And so you might want a higher rating, but they don't, they don't go halfway. It's you have to meet that bar. Um, so, but one of the things that um, Chris and I really did and really focused on was something called secondary claims and really finding something else that might not have that direct service connection, but might be led by something. So can you guys both talk about the process of that? Or if somebody is dealing with something, how they might recognize if they even have a secondary claim? Sure. So, so definition by example, first, say you have a a low back pain, sciatic nerve issue that is already service connected. We know because the body is so interconnected that the sciatic nerve pain could cause or, or lead to radiculopathy in, in your legs and your, your hands and your arms. And so you could file disability benefits for say a bilateral, meaning both sides, bilateral lower extremity, so your legs, uh, bi bilateral lower extremity radiculopathy as secondary to the already service-connected condition of sciatic nerve issues, something like that. And again, that is a pro-claimant part of this system. You know, your radiculopathy is not directly due to military service. You acknowledge that when you first file the claim, but the, you know, the, the A equals B equals C kind of dynamic, you know, your sciatic nerve leads to your radiculopathy, Ridic radiculopathy leads to another claim you can file. It's very useful to, to understand for yourself, maybe by talking with your doctor, uh, how, how your medical issues are interdependent or dependent on, on each other, because you could file for claims that you might have never have thought were related to military service, but somehow they are. Yeah, so I had one client, he, he was a huge, it took weeks and weeks and weeks. And I was going through, he had 7,000 plus pages and he had, I was, I was crafting a secondary claim. He had asthma, which required him to take prednisone, which was a steroid that can inhibit weight loss and actually promote weight gain. And also it causes a uh, micronutrient malabsorption and stuff like that. And he had compression fat fractures in his spine. He had weight gain and stuff like that. And he had, so he had asthma. So it was like, I can tie in the asthma and the fact that he's taking prednisone because secondary claims can also be from medication to treat a current problem. Like if you're taking, you know, prednisone is a good example because it has a lot of, it's a, it's a hormone steroid type of deal and it can affect a lot of your body systems. Um, and that's where you need to like see that the things are interconnected. And then he had some other illnesses that were in service that were medical journals said, if you have this condition, it, it will lead to this syndrome later because it's an autoimmune sort of problem. So I like, I mean, I wrote like a 24 page memo and I spent weeks and weeks and I, uh, I ended up calling him. So I wanted to make sure he was okay with these new claims. And I said, Hey, here's everything that I'm seeing in your claim. Here's the things I want to start. I want to add. You have this and this and this and this and this. And I think it's caused by these documented in-service events because there's a, there's a strong medical um, connection. You're going to have to go see a doctor for them to review 
you know, your in-service diagnosis compared to what you have now, and then probably this medical information to verify that it makes sense. And again, when you show up to a doctor, certainly help to have an independent one that's that's savvy on the VA system. But if also you show up with like medical studies that say this causes this, you know, at this frequency, especially with this demographic, these people are more susceptible to it as well. And you show up with that and you have this current diagnosis, it makes it much easier for them to go. It's as likely as not because they might ask, you know, okay, what are the other causes of this? Have you been bitten by a tick or have you, you know, done this? If you haven't done any of these things and the only thing you have is this condition you had in service, then it's easy for the doctor to say, okay, I asked all the other possible causes he didn't experience, which leaves me with this. And now it's as likely as not that it was right. And when I called him up and it goes back to what we talked about during your book discussion, like when I called him up and said, I want to claim these things because I think these are related to this. I can see how these are interrelated. You're taking this, you had this, like he broke down and started crying because it was like the first time someone had really heard him. And I think that goes back to the, the hearing that you're it's a very ironic. It's called a hearing because very often, a lot of those veterans just feel like through the, the sterilization of the administrative process of the veterans that they feel like they're, they're, they don't, they can't tell their story and they can't be heard either what happened in the service or how bad it is now. Like it's not well conveyed written. And I think a lot of times that testimony is huge. And for that, that gentleman, it was like the validation of the struggle they've been going through. And I'm telling you, I reached back to 1980. So you're talking like 40 years of his life was spent in this state of despair because of his military service. And then I just came along and was like, Hey, I see all of this. And I think we have a strong case and I want to do this. It was like, it was much more than the, he's going to get paid. It was very much that the struggles that he had been dealing with has now, has now heard and validated and it probably like rejuvenated him. I don't know. And that's one of those things where it sucks to be an intern because you don't get to know the outcome for this gentleman because it's like a year, year and a half away. But I just have faith that like he got all his money. So It's very validating for, for these guys, for sure. Uh, and, and you're correct, Chris, that the, the hearing, it, it's far more than just the, the administrative definition of that of that term. It's the, the judges and by extension, the whole VA system hearing and listening and actually listening about uh, this veteran story. And for a lot of these guys, I've had clients tell me, listen, I'm not in this for the money. I just want the recognition and the, the admission by the VA that, that, this mil that their military service has caused these medical issues for many guys, it's the principle of the matter. And you'll see, you know, other attorneys, not, not at Jackson McNichol, but I've heard other attorneys in this field say, no, 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 clients are always in it for the money. I disagree wholeheartedly. They, uh, it's, it's sometimes the recognition more than anything. The being denied a claim, that's, it feels as someone that's been denied a claim, it feels like the VA is calling you a liar. Yeah. It feels like. So when you're heard, when you get to go to the hearing, when you get to say your side, you know, at least you know that they could evaluate how genuine and honest you were at that moment. And certainly what Julianne goes back to talking to you in the book was it's probably easier in person versus virtual. So that's one of the kind of the drawbacks of the virtual 
uh, but the convenience of virtual, I think, is is huge. But just being heard and being believed, I mean, that's really the thread that goes through most of this for me. So I think that's that's huge. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yes. I, I definitely think that that's been the biggest takeaway for me in my internship. But um, going back to what you were talking about with validation and really owning up to mistakes, I think that that's the biggest display of that is the presumptions that are um, the presumptive conditions. And I think that is just them saying, we, we realize now, years later, that we messed up. And can you guys talk about which ones they are? And I, I think that that was something that I saw actually more frequently than I thought I would see in the cases that I just touched on, um, the, some of these things. Yeah, so, so the VA has a list of medical conditions on their website. And the medical evidence for these conditions ties so strongly to some in-service connections that the VA says, listen, you know, you do not need to get a nexus report. If you, you know, served here in, in place X at time Y and uh, you have this diagnosis, you are presumed service connected. So the most, uh, far-reaching example of that is Agent Orange exposure in Vietnam. I would say, just anecdotally speaking, the vast majority, at the, at the very least, a vast plurality of Jackson and McNichols clients are Vietnam veterans. And the VA, again, <laughs> I feel like a broken record, a, a pro-claimant uh, mechanism in the VA is that if you stepped one, if, if your pinky toe touched Vietnam land, you are presumed to have been exposed to Agent Orange uh, chemicals and defoliants. And, are, and if you have a, a, an applicable diagnosis, you are presumed uh, that the Agent Orange caused that condition. One off the top of my head I can think of, I think is prostate cancer and some other cancers. If you, if you have prostate cancer, uh, and you served in Vietnam, then you are presumed that your cancer was caused by the Agent Orange. The VA has further liberalized those rules within the last couple of years to say that if you served within 12 nautical miles of the Vietnam coastline, you are presumed to have been exposed to Agent Orange and afforded the same types of benefits in the same amounts as, as any veteran who served in Vietnam itself. Uh, and so there are, there's Agent Orange presumptions. There are some presumptions around PTSD. And if you were in combat anywhere, it could be Middle East or uh, Southeast Asia, there are presumptions for certain conditions incurred uh, if you served in the Gulf War in the early 90s, the whole host. Uh, and, and they're all on the VA's website. You can go and find them. Uh, and so these presumed conditions make the veteran's life easier in that you don't need to get a nexus report. You can simply say to the VA, listen, you know, I, I served here, I have this condition, I was exposed to this, therefore I deserve service connection for these claims. That's helpful because uh, very often it's hard to get a diagnosis in service. And that's something that I, as a service member, probably a lot of my listeners have experienced where you have to walk this fine line between telling your military doctors what's going on. So that way you can capture that, that true and accurate experience and medical condition in service. And also being hesitant because you know that 
they, it might trigger a medical evaluation board and kick you out and deny you, you know, your 20 year career with pension. So the presumptions create this, it's not a medical sort of proof. It's like a personnel side. Were you at this duty station at this time? And now you never had to even go to a doctor, but I would also caution, don't rely on wherever you are now to eventually become a presumptive sort of location or experience, because those are really, really rare. And it has to typically be a very egregious sort of harm that is yeah. well-documented. And typically there's lots of dying veterans that draw the attention and ire of Congress for them to launch. I mean, it's certainly documenting real medical conditions in the service is the best way to create an in-service event, but presumptions can kind of be a good chance to do it before also before we even realized, because I, you know, I think the argument is we didn't know how dangerous Agent Orange was at the time. So like you would have never known that you needed to even say I was exposed to Agent Orange in 1967 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then later it kind of gives you a opportunity to make a claim. And that speaks to, to an issue we run in when it comes to trying to prove a case. You know, unfortunately, and I, I write about this a little bit in my book, you know, there is a toxic masculinity aspect to military service, whether we like it or not. You know, some might say having such a, an atmosphere promotes camaraderie. You know, you're all guys, you know, 95% of the time you're guys and you're in this together and guys don't go to the doctor. They don't tell, you know, psychologists about their, their mental health issues. They, they want to appear tough and, and not, you know, embarrass themselves in service. Such I find with clients is it was the prevailing attitude when they were in and young and trying to prove themselves and, and keep on the good side of their, of their comrades and their superiors. So Chris, what you were saying about, you know, reporting, if you need to any medical conditions in service and finding diagnoses, it's tough when you can't even bring yourself to go to the infirmary in the first place, you know, through no, no, no blame on, on either side. That's just how it was. That's just how it is. Probably more so back in, you know, the mid 20th century or so. Um, but I'm sure now that's one aspect I cannot speak to because I've never been in service. But it's, it's tough where you, when clients have to tell judges, yes, your honor, I, I had this, you know, back pain in service, but I, how could I have been expected to go to the infirmary? when I would have been ridiculed and made fun of and would have appeared weak. And I did not want to appear weak for my buddies. You know, it's just, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's just issues we have to face with trying to prove a case. Yeah. I think the tough guy sort of culture was certainly back in, especially the Vietnam era. I think there's probably a little bit, a little bit of it now, but I think a lot more has to do with trust that the medical group will solve the problem. Cause in my experience, and probably a lot of my listeners are going to agree with this, I felt when I went to see a doctor, it was more about symptom mitigation than let's fix the underlying problem. You know, we call Motrin vitamin M for a reason. Um, <laughs> and, and I equated, I equated it sometimes seeing the doctor as just walking into a candy machine and turn the knob and getting a bunch of 800 milligram Motrin in my hand and walking out because that was the end effect with, of most appointments. And it's also really fun when you go in and say, I'm allergic to Motrin. And then you're, you see them like in panic mode and like, well, what do we do now? Because motion was going to be the thing we gave him anyway. But I think it's also the, the guilt of if you go on profile and you, 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 you yeah. know that the, the exact same mission requirements are required. So your team, your, your coworkers and stuff are going to have to pick up your slack. So there's going to be like a guilt 
you already know how hard it is now, which isn't like necessarily a tough guy thing. It's a work ethic. And these are the people you suffer with and you don't want to increase their suffering. And I think especially for me as a non-combat person, I think there's a bit of, well, I didn't get shot at. I didn't get blown up like these injuries that I got or this, this, what happened to me at work the other night, it's not, it's not worth me going. And never mind if I work shift work and the appointments are two in the afternoon, which is the equivalent of if you're a regular person. I mean, who goes to medical appointments at two in the morning? Like it's out of your circadian rhythm. It feels weird. So we have all these like barriers to going the lack of trust that you're going to get a good diagnosis and get fixed. It's all just going to be vitamin and symptom mitigation. You're going to leave your guys high and dry and it might be really hard for you to get to your appointment. And I think all that works against people. And then also the fear that if it's too severe, you're going to get MEB kicked out of the military and you're going to lose a 20 year pension. Like there's a lot of things working against going to the doctor, but I'll tell you what, in the long term, it's really hard to get. Like I remember one time there was a report uh, that came out that if you work night shift, your propensity for heart disease or something was like three or 400% higher. And I worked night shift for a really long time in my career. And I went to the doctor one day right after that report came out, we checked out whatever it was. And I said, Hey, I'd also like you to put in my medical record that I worked night shift. And she's like, Oh, so that way we schedule your appointments around that. I'm like, well, no, because a report came out saying that there's a higher rate of heart disease for people that work shift work. And I worked shift work for three years. I want you to put that in my medical record. And they, and they rolled their eyes at me. Like I was being uh, ridiculous. And it's like, well, where else would I capture this information? It's not yeah. going to be in my performance reports. It's not going to be in, in my personnel records. It's going to be me saying it. And then it's going to be 20 years from now where I say, Oh, I got heart disease. So I work shift work. They're going to say, how long and can you prove it? And the answer is going to be, I can get buddy letters right but it helps much more for a doctor to say on this date he worked night shift so part of that's also like going and documenting things that you think may not be important but capturing in your medical records yeah chris and i have had this conversation like this kind of i was like just tell everybody about your symptoms like no matter what they are like if you're fatigued or whatever and he's like you can't all the time and he just mentioned why because but as somebody who's not in the military that's something that was very shocking to me like um, I have a belief that anybody, if you go to the doctor, you should tell like even just the smallest symptom that they might not think matters. It, it, it might. So that might hurt. You, you might not be able to do that while you're in service. But when you get out and you're trying to document what's happening after you leave your service, there's this thing. Um, and Tyler, maybe you can talk about this. It's chronicity. I always say it wrong. Um, so it's just making sure that you're showing that it is a chronic thing. And that's very important. So just, just to rewind a second to, to the service connection test, there are three ways you can get something service connected. That a, a condition started in service, was caused by service, or aggravated by service. And then there is another, there's another way to get around the in-service connection aspect, that second prong of the test we talked about, and that is to show continuity of symptomology meaning that the condition is chronic and it began or it started in service and you've had it, you've had, you know, that low back pain ever since service. Uh, and so sometimes it's tough because, you know, our clients, maybe they separated from service in the seventies, eighties, you know, sixties, whatever it may be. It's been decades since they've, since they've dealt with that part of their lives. Plus, you know, keeping medical records from that time was so difficult. Um, whether through you know moving or or maybe the military lost your records, uh, there is a a class of 
military veterans if they had a particular dates and service where their records were destroyed uh, in a St. Louis fire. That's where all the, that's where the National Record Personnel Center is. And so a lot of service treatment records were destroyed. And that's, that's again, why the hearing is so important. You know, it's a chance to explain to the judge, yes, you know, my, my service treatment records were destroyed, cannot find them. In that case, there's a actually there's some heightened presumption that the, the records would actually prove what the veteran is asserting. Uh, and then just so many legal technicalities like that, I could go on forever with it. But uh, you're right, Julianne, the, the ability to prove that a condition is chronic is extraordinarily helpful to a claim. Yeah, and, and when, when I was reviewing, like I said, with j and a lot of the clients were you know older, so you saw these huge gaps. And I got really frustrated because it's like some of these, some of these people were separated under, you know, some behavioral issues, very likely caused by PTSD or some sort of in-service event that caused a mental health condition. And then they were barred from like VA benefits because of the category of the discharge. And then they might've been impoverished for like 20 years. And it's like, you, now you're asking them to choose between food and shelter and like going to see a doctor to prove this continuity of treatment. So you know, for any active service people that are listening now, like you get the benefit of, you know, what the lessons we learned watching what, what went on over the last 40 years, but try to get stuff documented in your medical records that happens to you. That's, that's, you know, symptoms and, and events or whatever, but also when you get out, if it's, if it's bothering you, don't, don't tough it out, especially now that you're a civilian, like go to the, go to the, you know, if you can, if you have a good VA, you know, discharge and you have some VA health benefits, then go and just, you know, your lower back pain, your lower back pain. And, and, you know, as it progresses, you can show, you know, that you kept going year over year over year to get this kind of looked at and taken care of. So to get close to wrapping up, there's something that even after my internship, and I can talk at like an elementary level, but not very well about effective dates. And I think that that's one of the most important things when it comes to how much you can get um, and for veterans. So if you guys can both kind of make a very simple discussion of effective dates and why they are so important, um, that would be great. Yeah, so effective dates is the date the VA determines when they will start paying you benefits. And uh, it's because the process of, of applying for benefits and receiving benefits can take years. Effective dates are super important. Uh, so, you know, if uh, just again, by, by way of example, if I file a claim for benefits in April 2015 and my case, you know, I, I get a rating decision uh, in December 2015, the effective date for my claim is not December 2015, it's April when I first filed the claim. So whatever the, the VA decides to award for benefits will be made a retroactive to April 2015. Uh, and, and those retroactive benefits, that's where, you know, that is super important to stay on top of, uh, making sure that you file in a, a claim really as soon as, as soon as you can after you gather the evidence you need because the earlier effective date, the better. And th there are some situations where an effective date can be, you know, a year before you file your claims. That, that's really digging down into, in, into the weeds. But uh, overall, yes, the effective date, date you, you file your claim or your intent to file your claim, as Chris mentioned before, um, 
usually, you know, the, the effective date then by almost necessity is decades and decades after you separate from service. Uh, but in some cases, it's not like, like uh, Chris, you know, recent separation from service. It's, it's, it can get really technical in some parts, but overall it's, it's also at the same time, very elementary. Yeah. And also for like, you know, it, again, the intent to file is fairly easy. And if, if you think you're going to be doing a claim, I recommend, recommend doing an intent to file. It gives you a year to kind of get all things together and submit. Like that's good if you need to start digging for medical records, but you want to get your effective date sooner. If it's within one year of separation, if it, if it appears to be a fairly chronic sort of condition, it'll very often backdate to your data separation. Um, and then a really important piece that we haven't touched, touched on yet is if you maintain appeals for decisions, you will keep, if you, if you appeal in a timely manner within the statutory period, like if you get a rejection and then, you know, you, your, your rejection or your decision package from the VA has, you know, this is why we rated you at this percentage. This is why we didn't rate you at this higher percentage. And you're looking at like, well, I have a lot of the things in this higher percentage and you want to go to get a doctor, you know, or something else. You have a time and it says right in there, you have a time that you can appeal. And if you meet that requirement to appeal within that amount of time, you will maintain your original file date from that. In, in this scenario, let's say it's April, 2015 and you get the decision December of 2015 and within that statutory period, you file an appeal, which I think is a little bit different depending on where you are in the process and um, whether it was legacy or AMA. That's why I'm not speaking specific numbers because I don't want to give people the wrong information. Look at what your package says for how long you have to appeal. And if you appeal within that time, you'll reach all the way back to April, 2015. And then if they give a decision on that appeal you don't agree with, and you appeal that appeal or you submit new evidence or you do all these other things, you can still maintain that April 2015 timeline. So it's really important for that, you know, that um, the effective date, like part of it's going to be maintenance by either you as the veteran, if you're doing your claim by yourself or your, your attorney. And what I experienced in, in Jackson McNichol, it was, you know, we always did the appeal immediately. We like, we made sure we put our foot down to going forward. Like, I think, the standard letter was, we just got assigned to this person. We don't know the status of the case. We don't know what disabilities, but we consider we appeal all of them. And the whole point is we need to put that out there. So that way now we have time to like deconstruct what's going on and we can be a more, more precise sort of appeal. But it's very important to maintain that um, to, for your effective date because it's going to be back pay and that's what you should be getting. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, it, it makes so much sense to, you know, the veteran, the, the claimant does not choose to have the VA act so slowly. So how does, so, so how do we rectify this? We, we award back pay, you know, it, it's really a, a, a uh, fair, it, it's a very fair implementation in the VA system. Uh, and same with the intent to file, you know, I have precious little uh, non-academic experience in any other kind of law except VA, uh, but the intent to file I don't know if there's any equivalent to it uh, in, in regular courts, um, you know, to say like, oh, you know, I'm going to file a disability claim. I don't have all the evidence yet. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to claim. I just want to preserve my effective date uh, is, is novel. And yeah. it's, it's great. It's, and as long as you get your official claim application in within a year from that intent to file date, your, your effective date will be that intent to file. Yeah. Uh, 
so it, it, it preserves you potentially, you know, 11 or 12 months of, of back pay that you may not get otherwise. Yeah. And that, that back pay system with that effective data is it's good for some veterans. I'll say like, that's, that's, it seems fair because it's like, if you keep appealing, eventually you prove that, yes, you did have this disability, then we're going to preserve all this because you should have been paid this money anyway. So like, if you're somebody that's doing a, a claim right now and you've lost, as long as you're still appealing, you're going to, you're going to eventually get what's owed to you. The problem is, is much like what me and Julianne saw in some of these uh, case files for the clients is some of them are dying or some of them are living in such poverty that it's just like, this is where you realize the back pay system has a giant uh, hole in it because there's veterans out there that are struggling mm -hmm. and telling them that in two years they're going to get accurate compensation and they don't know if they're going to live the next two years. Like that's a really tough pill to swallow. Mm. So it's good, but it's not quite perfect. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to do final thoughts. So Julianne, I'll start with you as somebody that didn't know anything about the VA system until like June of this year. Yeah. Until Chris explained the entire system and then I got my internship. Um, so I, I think that the system as a whole is, um, as we talked about a little bit of the pros and cons of it, I, I think that the number one word that I like to think of is perseverance, is that if you just keep doing what you need to do and you can go online and there's a bunch of resources, you can go to an attorney um, like Jackson McNoll and they, they will help you. And there are, there are resources to help you. Um, and I, I think that uh, through all these steps and if you just keep persevering, you can get a higher rating um, or the rating that the, C the CFR says that you need. And um, I think that that's exactly what I learned is that you persevere, you can, you can make strides towards getting a higher rating, towards getting what you feel that you've earned. And I think another thing is that we're starting to see a lot of changes. Like Congress, even while I was there, we were talking about new things Congress was going to implement. And new ideas. So we are seeing changes in there. So I think that the system is getting more efficient. And I think that the system is just coming around to helping more veterans. Absolutely. Yes. The, the Congress is liberalizing more rules and regulations around the VA. The VA itself under its rulemaking capability uh, is doing the same. Um, this really, there's really no financial disincentive to file for claims, uh, you know, one, worse the, the VA could say is no. And two, if they do say no, you can hire an attorney like, like us at Jackson and McNichol who do work on a contingent fee basis and you will never lose money by, by hiring us or, or anybody else who does a contingent fee basis. Um, and, and, you know, the VA disability attorneys have that technical know-how and understanding of the law to 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 gain benefits for clients and, and we we will persist for years until you know as long as we think the case is winnable ultimately we will pursue it and you know the, the whole key to the VA disability process is patience combined with persistence that's something that uh, my boss Francis Jackson says to uh, new clients I mean it, it will take years to get all of the all the money that we can try to get for you. Now with this new system in place, you know, wait times and such are making uh, that timeline a bit more condensed. 
but it's, it's, it's an investment in time. And uh, as long as veterans understand that, then I encourage them to seek, in, to seek representation now. Doesn't even have to be us. Just, just get the help that, that will help you. I agree. And then uh, something we didn't quite touch on, but it seems related. Like if there's a condition that you know is service connected and you just feel like you can't get it or you don't want to uh, submit for it for whatever reason, I would, I would reconsider because that whole conversation we had over presumptions or the conversation we had over secondary, like you might have some in-service event that's a very low compensable sort of percentage, but it might actually lead to a secondary condition that you currently have tying into the service. So as long as it's not, you know, fraudulent or a lie, if it, if it legitimately happened to you in service, make the claim. And the other piece of that is, I think a lot of veterans get a 0% rating and they're really disheartened, but I'll tell you what, you just did two of the big prongs of the, you know, you, you, as soon as you get 0%, you just create an in-service connection and, you know, an in-service event is validated and there's a nexus and you have a, you know, current diagnosis, but now you've done the hard part, which is you, you put the VA on the hook for that harm to you. And now it's all you're left with is just the last leg, which is what is my current symptomology on my worst day? Even if I take medication to kind of, you know, mitigate it, be a high blood pressure medication or whatever, you now have the condition tied to the VA. So now you can start focusing on how does it impact your life? How severe is it? How does the 38 CFR measure it? How does my numbers look by comparison? Like the hard part's kind of done and now you can keep pushing for an accurate rating. So like, don't, I wouldn't give up on those things. Like, it's really important that it's, it's as accurate as possible. And then also like there's benefits that if you die later on in life from a service connected disability, like your spouse and widow can get, you know, money from the VA to kind of help take care of them. And if you, if you gave up on that claim and any potential secondary claims that would kind of derive from that, you're also barring yourself from any sort of, you know, not any, but maybe potential death benefits if, if it comes from that as well. So keep that in mind. There's also like the specter of if you submit, they're going to reevaluate all your other stuff and then you could lose percentage. But I think the reality is if you make accurate claims for actual disabilities in service, I think the specter of getting reevaluated is mostly just fear mongering or, or just apprehension over being evaluated and judged again, especially since there's that feeling that you're presumed to be lying. At least that's not like, you know, that's not an, an overt sort of thing, but as a veteran, you know, you submit your claim, you get denied, you feel like they're calling you a liar. So uh, don't be afraid to submit claims is what I'll say. Okay. Well, man, this was, this was good. Like I, I really appreciate it. And I, I, I have, ample faith that a lot of people listening that are coming up on the ends of their careers are probably appreciative of what we did today. I will probably also, when I post this, uh, just solicit any questions or if there's anything that wasn't covered, which might lead to potentially a second podcast, depending on how dense it is, or at least I'll, I'll probably shoot those questions to Tyler real quick, just to get his take on it. And I might kind of review them and have Tyler sanity check if that's cool with you, Tyler, and then give sure. those, give those answers back. But again, it's not legal advice and we're not forming a attorney client relationship either. So if you want to do that, you need to contact a law firm. Other than that, that's it. Yeah. Well, thanks, Chris. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. Julianne, it was good to see you again. It was so good to see you.
it was not, it was good to talk about this uh, th this specter that is the the disability benefits process, as well as giving me a chance to talk about my book. Again, it's called There and Back Again: America Through the Eyes of a Traveling Disability Attorney, and you can find it on Amazon. So I encourage your listeners to to pick it up, read it. Uh, if they like it or don't like it, regardless, please leave a review on Amazon. Uh, and re remember that half of all the book's profits will go to a good national veterans cause. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, everybody. And adios.